we need to talk about the rule of law. A podcast by Verfassungsblock and Deutscher Anwaltsverein. Welcome back to the fifth episode of Defending the Defenders, the rule of law podcast by Deutscher Anwaltverein and Verfassungsblock, which focuses on Colombia, where the situation for attorneys and human rights defenders is particularly dangerous. In recent years, hundreds of attorneys and human rights defenders have been killed, death threats against them are being made on a regular basis, and they have been under pressure by the government as well. The danger they face in their work is deeply connected to the issues they fight for, and the clients they represent. In this episode, we talk to Claudia Müllerhoff, a human rights defender that has worked in Germany for the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights and in Colombia for the Colectivo de Abogados José Alvear Restrepo about the way attorneys and human rights defenders work in these conditions and what needs to be done to protect them. Claudia, thank you so much for talking to us. So how... Is the profession of lawyer being regulated in Colombia and what is the basic structure of the profession at the moment? Yes, the, the situation I would say is similar to European countries. You have several laws mm. regulating the professional obligations and ethical rules for lawyers and lawyers are considered um, They have a, a social function, which is established in the law mm -hmm. as an independent organ of administration of justice, similar to what we know from Germany, for example. They are qualified to be admitted as an attorney. They're qualified by state exams after university studies. And there's also a disciplinary code for attorneys. That's law number 1123 of 2007 and a disciplinary Proceedings are held by the Superior Council of Judicature. Um, you have bar associations of attorneys also in Colombia, as mm -hmm. we know them from Germany, for example, at uh, the federal level and also at the depart departmental levels. They are quite recent, though, and they are not as established, and their work is not as established in Germany. They're much criticized because membership is voluntary. So the bar associations have not the same disciplinary powers, and so they're rather, rather weak, actually, in their function of controlling the quality of the profession, and even more so in their function, which they officially have a function to protect the legal profession from, from interference, but they don't really appear in that task. They don't really have a, a reputation to fulfill that mandate, and it's mainly because of lack of capacity, I think. Um, so the UN Special Rapporteur for the Independence of Judges and Lawyers of the UN, Ms. Gabriela Naul de Albuquerque Silva, in a few years back, has mm -hmm. criticized the weakness of these organizations in Colombia, especially because they are voluntary and have a very weak mandate. And I think, I don't have recent figures, but I think the situation has not much improved since then, um, as the Caravan of Lawyers has reported, which visits Colombia uh, every, every second year. So the bar associations that do exist are, as you said, rather a, a voluntary association of lawyers, but not a self-regulating body that has um, certain powers by law. What 
given these uh, circumstances, this this maybe a certain lack in um, obligatory association. What is the relationship of lawyers and the government in Colombia? Um, how does it look like, and how do how do lawyers organize themselves uh, in order to be heard by the government? Uh, yeah, well, you might know that the government has changed yes. a few months back in Colombia, and that has been quite a surprising change because it's for the first time uh, in in a long time that there's a left wing um, president in power, uh, Gustavo Petro. So I think that has meant hope for great changes in the country. Um, he has, uh, he came into office in August 2022 and has declared a program of total peace, as he calls it, as the highest priority of his government period. And so this proposal of total peace has managed to go through parliament and be approved, which means that the government has authorization to negotiate peace with a number of illegal armed groups, both politically as, as well as non-politically motivated groups. It includes chapters of, well, the most important chapter really of finally implementing the existing peace agreement with the FARC guerrilla group, which under the last government of President Duque was, you could say, was abandoned. The implementation process was really mm -hmm. not a political priority. And so a lot of a lot of humanitarian and human rights problems have been accumulating in the last government's period, which there's a lot of hope for change now for this current government. And uh, in fact, you can see that the new government agrees with a lot of demands that many human rights defenders and human rights lawyers have been bringing forward over many, many years uh, with regards to analyzing the social conflicts and injustices in the different regions of the country, the economic interests and related conflict dynamics. So, in fact, uh, several, for example, of the human rights defenders that I used to accompany as a, as a protective accompanist with Peace Brigades International 18 years ago, they are now in leading positions within the government administration. Mm -hmm. uh, however, at the same time, the more, I would say, the more the government advances with its program of total peace, the more it also challenges and contests territorial, political and economic spaces of, of interested powerful actors no? that are related to illegal groups um, and, uh, and that have established uh, military or, or paramilitary or violent controls in a number of regions. And so that can mean that in the short term, the level of violence will not decrease, but maybe increase. And that we have, that's also something that we have seen over the last few years since FARC have uh, left uh, regions and territories and uh, governance gaps have opened up. So the state still works to establish control and civil governance in, in all regions and has not yet established that. And it will be actually interesting to see also how the government progresses in this attempt as it proposes to look at security. And that's quite interesting, I found. It, it proposes to look at security, not from a military perspective, but as a development question. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, implies a number of different logics and tools um, to govern in those historically conflictive regions of the country. 
you've already touched a bit upon um, the violence uh, human rights defenders face in their work. According to recent reports by Reuters and others, nearly 200 social leaders and human rights defenders, including attorneys, have been killed in Colombia in the past year. Um, you've already talked about it a bit, but what are the reasons for this high number of killings and what is the structural problem um, behind it? Um, and I think it is also a problem that the new government, as you said, wants to tackle now. Yes, this, this, these high numbers of killings are probably the worst form of attacks against human rights mm -hmm. defenders and, and also lawyers. There are, of course, other threats that they face, including harassment, stigmatization, and illegal surveillance, also the break-ins into their offices and theft of sensitive information. Um, physical harm, of course, direct attacks and to them and to their families, and also slap suits. So... Mm -hmm. That's defamation suits, false, false accusations, slaps. Slap stands for strategic litigation against public participation. Mm -hmm. And so the figures of killings are certainly only the tip of the iceberg. Um, and they are increasing over the recent years, in particular since the peace agreement was signed in 2016. So in the past, for example, an investigative institute here in Colombia, they count more than 1,300 social leaders killed since 2016. And in addition to that, you have a high number of ex-combatants of the guerrilla group, FARC, which has demobilized. And these ex-combatants are also often killed and in a very difficult security situation. And what comes in addition to that is that impunity rates are still very, very high in those cases. So uh, the organization Somos Defensores counts between 87 and 95% of the impunity in those cases of, of killings and other attacks mm -hmm. to human rights defenders. As to the root causes of this violence, um, the armed conflict in Colombia has often been closely related, and I mentioned that, to economic interests in land, in territory, and in resources. So the same regions that were contested and under control of illegal armed groups before the peace agreement, they were so often because of interest in land and resources, and these interests, they still persist today. In those regions where FARC, this guerrilla group, has left after the peace agreement, they have left a vacuum of power and governance. And the state has not always been able to fill that, as I mentioned. And so often new illegal groups come in into these regions and they fight amongst each other for control over territory, over, for example, routes of illegal traffic, of arms, of drugs and other illicit goods. And you have a number of illegal armed organizations at the moment. Not all of them are of a political character. Some are, some are guerrilla groups or paramilitary groups, and some are simply um following illicit economic objectives so that means just to understand just because farc and army do not fight anymore against each other doesn't mean there is no conflict in the country yeah peace is still uh, so to speak hard work to be done in many regions and also we need to remember that the peace agreement was signed with just one group at the mm -hmm. time this is why the president currently with the proposal of total peace proposes to negotiate with many more groups and in fact he's already advancing in this task because he has just now just a few days ago announced a ceasefire with i think five different armed groups 
for the first six months of this year. Uh, but just to give a, an overview of the conflict situation in the country, uh, the International Red Cross identified in 2022 several armed conflicts in the country between, they identified, for example, an armed conflict between the government troops and the ELN, which is a guerrilla group, then between the government and the FARC dissidents, because there are, of course, a number of, uh, of fighters of FARC who have never entered into the peace agreement or who have at a later stage abandoned the peace process. Then you have a fight between government and the auto defenses Gaitanistas de Colombia, which is a paramilitary group, and there are other paramilitary groups. This is one of the biggest ones. Then you have also fights between those groups amongst each other, uh, between the ALN and the FARC dissidents, for example, or between the ALN and the auto defenses, and so on. So they've identified, the Red Cross has identified conflicts in 17 out of 31 departments in Colombia. So that's more than 50% of the territory. And there's also a sense of abandonment by the state and of distrust towards the army and state forces in, in a lot of regions. So the situation is still quite unstable. And uh, we need to see the total peace program, how far it can advance in this regard. As I said, the first steps are quite quite promising at the moment. And a, a 2020 report by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights um, of the United Nations said that the single most targeted group was human rights defenders advocating on behalf of community-based and specific ethnic groups such as indigenous people and Afro-Colombians, particularly when they advocate against corporate activities often related, as you said, to land interests and, and resources. Um, how, if it's possible to break this down a bit, how does human rights activism in, in Colombia look like? What are the main points of, of activity and how does this extreme personal danger shape the work that human rights advocates can do in the country? Yes, um, I would agree with that identification of the most targeted group, although if you say this, the, the single most targeted group, then it sounds a bit like as if it were one united group and yes, a large group yes, and there's a strong group. But in mm -hmm. reality, many of the people under threat live in rural areas and are often yes. quite isolated. So they are not connected to each other. They're not connected to net networks, much less to international networks and to support services. So while many of their cases show parallels in the sense that you mentioned, mm -hmm. that they're usually marginalized, not very well-resourced communities that are targeted, and the underlying conflicts also are often related to extractive projects such as coal mining or oil extraction or um, other resources, also renewable en energy projects and infrastructure projects, by the way. Uh, and here the question is always who controls access to land and resources? Uh, these projects are implemented in the territory of those communities, Afro-Colombian or indigenous communities, as you mentioned, because exactly because these are protected territories that that are, so to speak, for, from an investor's point of view, they would be uh, empty in quotation marks. No? Mm -hmm. So uh, all these activists and communities through their marginalization and isolation, not only not only in the regions as such that are difficult to access, but also marginalization and isolation in in the legal sense or in the political sense, they, are, they are, don't have in reality a lot of um, 
access to political participation spaces, and this is why they are particularly vulnerable and exposed. The other topic that is also uh, to be mentioned in terms of what triggers aggression in particular, and it's not quite not really unrelated, is the implementation of the peace agreements as such, in particular the transitional justice processes that look into truth, into the truth about who's responsible for the many massacres that happened in this country, forced displacement, disappearances, torture, and, and many other crimes during the long time of the armed conflict. As I said, that it's still ongoing. So not everyone's happy for the truth to come out, and witnesses and victims and also their lawyers and investigators are threatened and killed before they can find out or speak the truth. So how are these related, the issue of implementation, the issue of truth and uh, the economic interests in the regions? As I mentioned earlier, while in many cases the underlying the violent conflict dynamics were strategic or are strategic interests in land and territory and resources. And while the armed groups may in some cases have demobilized, they haven't in all cases, but while they may have demobilized, the economic interests still persist. And as I said, there's a lot of uh, illegal actors still, still active in the country. The lawyers' risks tend to be identified as related to their clients' causes. Mm -hmm. So as they defend and accompany communities who fight for their rights, for territory, for um, environmental justice, uh, for peace, the, the lawyers have identified the reasons for the harassment that they are involved with those cases related to, for example, land rents, restitution, but also extrajudicial executions, and a lot of cases related to the interests of companies, including multinational companies. Now, to the question maybe, uh, what does this extreme personal risk mean? My impression is that the causes for which people fight are so just and so legitimate that human rights defenders do not really back down in the face of threats or mm -hmm. harassment or even systematic persecution. I've rather seen sometimes a tendency maybe to try and ignore these risks, to not allow them to hinder the work that they consider necessary. And I also think it's maybe a kind of solidarity between with other activist communities. They encourage each other and they support each other, whatever it costs. And it would probably weaken uh, one group if they see that another group is backing down. Mm -hmm. uh, so motivations are ethical and political and also I think educational because they ask, what will I respond to my grandchildren? And they ask me in the future, what did you do in the face of such injustice? I remember when I worked in protective accompaniment a few years back with Peace Brigades International, when our team assessed the situation as too risky for us to go and accompany a certain mission, then we, and we would say we don't have protective effect. So it doesn't make sense that we go because it's too risky. And then our clients, the human rights defenders and social leaders, they would always respond, okay, it's no problem, we can go without you. So they would never have stopped their work just because of the security risk situation. Um, and, and what are, in addition to this bravery and solidarity you talked about, um, what are safety strategies employed by lawyers and human rights defenders on the one hand, and what must be done to better protect them, you know, what can be done and what needs to be done by, by other actors mm -hmm. as well? Um, yeah. The, the issue of, of 
safety and of protection, of course, is an issue that's already been taken up for, for a while now by the Colombian mm -hmm. authorities. There's a national protection unit that is in charge, is under the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and it's in charge of protecting individuals and groups and also communities. Um, it's much criticized, however, because, well, it's inefficient, there's a lack of resources, the protection tools are often considered inadequate, because, for example, the unit focuses on physical protection, for example, they give out mobile phones uh, when people go to regions where there's no coverage, or they, they give out bulletproof vests and cars, and uh, these measures are not always functional. What those affected ask for would be collective protection measures that would also include the family, the families of those that under threat and would also include the communities. Uh, they would also ask for political support for the work of human rights defense mm -hmm. as such, as opposed to stigmatization, slap suits and impunity, which are all mechanisms where the state organs are directly involved. So in terms of protection strategies, lawyers and human rights defenders obviously cannot rely on the state and they would have to, they build their own strategies. Um, lawyers consider their public profile as relevant to their self-protection, mm -hmm. but they also recognize that both high and low profiles can serve as a strategy for self-protection. It really depends on the particular case and on the resources that one can um, mobilize. Many lawyers, I think, build networks, support networks, where they can make their situation known and seek support, both emotional as well as practical, sometimes also financial support sometimes even help with temporary exile. Now, the exile strategy, I would say, in my opinion, is, is, is a last resort, really. And it's not ideal because it simply helps to save one's life, but it really breaks with the possibility to continue the work, which is so important also for people's um, emotional health and, uh, and well-being, no? to be able to continue the work that they do. So effective protection should not only look at or start at the stage of saving one's life and then look mm -hmm. at exile, but at saving the possibility to continue the work. And so it usually needs to start much earlier, not when the situation is entirely escalated, much earlier at the time when people are maybe at risk that are not even very willing to confront yet. And they are... Um, not paying really attention because these risks are frightening, they are debilitating, they are isolating. So the protection strategies for lawyers should not be isolated, I think, from the context of why they are at risk. And that means protection and solidarity need to extend to the causes of the communities and the human rights defenders that they work with. Lawyers are at risk, as I said earlier, no? because they defend human and environmental rights defenders, mm -hmm. who again are at risk because they question the straight status quo of powerful interests and of social injustice. Uh, the, cause, the causes of victims of the conflict, the search for truth, access to justice, the search to return and get access to land, freedom from discrimination, these causes need as much solidarity support as the lawyers who defend them. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think international solidarity, both at an individual as well as an institutional level, is, is very important. Uh, first, for people to get to know the situation. This is why a podcast like this is 
I think, extremely important to make the situation known and trigger solidarity, which is why it would have been actually very nice to have a Colombian lawyer sitting here and explaining yes. the situation. It's very unfortunate that we didn't manage to find in the short uh, time now over Christmas, which is the only week I think they take a break here in Colombia. <laughs> So concretely, for example, there are organizations who report about cases of lawyers and human rights defenders under threat, such as Amnesty International. It's very known for the Observatory for the Protection of Human Rights Defenders. And then there's also more recently founded, which I just found out now, the International Observatory of Endangered Lawyers, of which several European national bar associations have become founding members. I think not the German one, as far as I know, but that might be a task to consider. Uh, these organizations offer very concrete ways of how to support individual and sometimes also collective cases, you know, through urgent appeal letters, financial support, also sometimes the possibility to join trial observations and missions of uh, trial observation missions and fact-finding missions. For example, the International Caravana of Lawyers uh, organizes such trips every other year. And of course, the bar associations need to take a stand in this situation also and show public support and financial support, institutional support, not only to the bar associations, but also to, to specific lawyers and lawyers organizations who, who, who work on specific topics. So there are many ways and levels where, where one can become active, both institutionally as well as individually. And to conclude, what is the state of the rule of law in Colombia, given that attorneys and human rights defenders face such risks for doing their work, uh, even though they um, try not to let that hinder them in their work? Well, in, in theory, like in many countries, I would say, and according to the Con Con Colombian constitution of 1991, you have all the legal foundations for a strong rule of law. Yeah, you have the same principles as we know them in Europe, Nibis in Eden, presumption of innocence, the right to a legal defense, and the recognition of the independence of the legal profession, and a lot of principles that are contained, for example, in, in the basic principles on the role of lawyers of, of the UN. Uh, these principles, however, they also speak of the duty of governments to protect lawyers from intimidation and harassment and improper interference. Um, and also, that's an important point, actually, in Colombia, which human rights lawyers always claim, these principles, they point out that lawyers should not be identified with their clients and their clients' causes as a result, or as a result of doing their legal work. And this is exactly what happens in Colombia, as I, as I try to explain, mm -hmm. it's exactly one of the main risk factors. So in practice, in practice, um, the rule of law doesn't always work so well. You have still very high level of impunity and uh, uh, in, in many cases of persecution against human rights lawyers and human rights defenders and social leaders. And these cases of impunity, I think, is important to mention that it's not just a coincidence whether, or it's not just a weakness of um, capacity in the justice institutions. So it's cases with economic and political implications where powerful interests determine whether justice should work or not work. So impunity is quite selective um, according to those interests. 
um, with illegal armed groups as well as economic actors, legal and illicit actors in the background who determine these questions. I recently, for example, heard a lawyer here explain that in the prosecutor's offices, many, many cases of human rights violations, historical cases are fully investigated, but the higher levels of political power make sure these cases do not see the light of day in court. So the problem seems not to be one of lack of resources or incompetence, but it's a lack of political will. Um, so many people are very curious now to see because the, the president will suggest for election a, a, a new general prosecutor now shortly, mm -hmm. 2023. And it will be very interesting to see if that really um, changes the, the direction of the ship or not, if that really makes a, makes a difference. Of course, there's a lot of hope. And at the same time, there are also capacity issues in other fields. We need to recognize that. So, exam for example, in the land restitution cases under law 1448 of 2011, um, this is a law that establishes comprehensive reparation systems for victims of the conflict to return to their lands and claim compensation and uh, displacement from land has been a huge, a massive, massive problem in this country. So the processes are bureaucratic and lengthy and complex, and there's thousands and many thousands of cases still unresolved, which is also related to impunity in the sense that land occupiers who benefited from forced displacements, including large companies, in many cases remain unquestioned as to their uh, land tenure, whereas victims carry quite a heavy burden procedurally to prove their situation as victims and their rights to the land. So even where victims receive positive judgments to return to their land, they then receive death threats from illegal armed groups and are not often not able to return to their land. They and also their lawyers are not protected by the authorities in these situations, both because of um, say the sheer number of cases, and also, as I said, because there are still quite powerful interests um, present in those regions, and these powerful interests are often vested with, with violent, uh, with, with um, control over violent groups. Well, thank you very much for, for talking to us um, and for your insights into the topic. My pleasure. This was the fifth episode of Defending the Defenders. We will be back in two weeks with our second to last episode on the regulation of the profession of lawyer in the European Union. See you then.